Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a fashion magazine names Providence as a getaway destination. Bad news for the Martha's Vineyard Ferry again. And loaded guns on snowmobiles? It's okay in New Hampshire. It's our regional roundtable. Later in the show, sit-ins, boycotts, occupations, and demonstrations. The United States has a long history of protests, from the Founding Fathers to never again. We are making real change. We are the only ones able to reach out to the youth and connect with the youth and show that it's our time to make change in this country. Exploring America's tradition of student-led activism. But first, joining me from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio, Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Welcome back, Arnie. It's a pleasure. Also with me, from HIPAA Studios in Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Philip. Hi, Callie. And joining me from Cape Cod, Patrick Cassidy, news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Hello again, Patrick. Hello, everybody. Great to have you. All right, let's jump right into New Hampshire, where guns, they love their guns. And in a weekend where thousands of students have just made a statement about gun control, New Hampshire in the House have just voted to let people carry loaded guns on snowmobiles and ATVs. At the same time, the Senate has said no to gun-free school zones. So please explain. We are an incredibly pro-gun state. In fact, we just passed constitutional carry. You can carry a concealed weapon without a permit. It is a state that literally, it's NRA's favorite state. After you know, It used to be Florida, but because of Parkland, Florida is now sort of scratched off the list. And we have definitely now arrived number one. Uh, what is so interesting, though, let's start with the bill about local control and kids and schools and having gun-free schools. What was so amazing is they couldn't even find a gun control bill to attach this to because we've kind of almost given up uh, the idea that even anything in the way of gun control would get any kind of traction in New Hampshire. So they had to do floor amendments. They had to do all kinds of creative things. And, of course, this is a state where normally you would have assumed that local control would be dogma. But when it comes to guns, guns is number one. It's a religion here. And as a result, uh, Senator Hennessy in the state Senate attempted to allow communities to exercise some kind of local control about whether they wanted to have guns on campus and to actually limit access to guns. And it turned out that they said no, that it would create this hodgepodge of, you know, which community had guns in their schools and which did not, as if you know, suddenly that became an issue. So it is It is not surprising. And then almost simultaneously in the New Hampshire House, there was a bill that was introduced about allowing people who drive ATVs and snowmobiles to have loaded guns on their ATVs and snowmobiles. And it passed. It was pretty close, but it, it did pass. And one of the rationales was, well, you know, if you're a tree farmer, you may be trying to shoot raccoons. And therefore, if you're trying to shoot raccoons, you're going to need to be in your ATV with a loaded gun and be able to shoot a, or a porcupine or something. I don't know. But it is absolutely amazing how we will genuflect to anything that relates to a gun and not even raise a question that there should be any kind of rule and regulation. And our governor has actually embraced that and supported that. And yet, you know, what's going on? in Parkland seems to be 
not being heard, at least in the New Hampshire legislature. Now, with regard to the ATV uh, bill, it still has to pass the Senate, but uh, you meant it. It will. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking it's going to. And let me just also note that there were a lot of students sort of in the the mode of the student-led activism that's been happening out of Parkland around this issue. A number of students from area high schools were in the state house sort of supporting the gun-free school zone and when it died. And I'm, I'm actually glad they were there because I got to actually hear the arguments that were so bizarre uh, on the floor of the state Senate. And in a lot of ways, you can't replicate that unless you're actually sitting in the balcony watching. And I think it was a wonderful teachable tool for them because, you know, they really are seeing what's happening around the country, thinking that people are being a little more responsive as they saw what happened with the Florida legislature, as they see even some pieces of legislation going into the budget in Washington. And then you get to conquer New Hampshire, and it can disabuse you that anyone is hearing you because, mm. in fact, they don't. And I think this is a, a teachable moment for these kids about why the franchise will matter. Well, uh, Philip Isle, the first thing I thought about with regard to the ATVs and snowmobiles, you're going over uneven terrain. So there I am, let's picture it, you know, having my cocktail in the wherever you have a cocktail on the snow trail because I wouldn't be skiing, minding my own business. Some guy goes across some uneven terrain with a loaded gun and shoots me because the thing goes off inappropriately. Exactly. I, I Help me with that, Philip. I'm not sure I can help you with that. I, I think we're just in this extraordinary moment where, as Arnie said, in, in states like New Hampshire and really across the country, there was just seemingly very little being done legislatively to hamper uh, the rights of gun owners. And I think we're going to look back on this time as a really extraordinary time with the most stark thing to me being the federal rule against the CDC studying the health effects of gun violence. And I, I do think... Um, I'm not one for making predictions, but it seems to me that younger people, the high schoolers today, will not stand for this. And they are organizing themselves. They are marching. They are writing. There's an incredible op-ed from Cleveland.com a few weeks ago that I would recommend to everyone. The headline, I'm an American teenager. My school isn't safe. My country is failing me, written by a freshman in high school. I would also recommend for those who haven't seen it, the 60 Minutes story on the Parkland kids uh, who are organizing after their mass shooting. One of them says... We are the mass shooting generation. Hmm. I think that bears repeating. We are the mass shooting generation. So I think when this generation gets old enough to vote, when they get old enough to run for office, I don't think we're going to see these waves of small, medium, and large expansions of gun rights. I, I think we are eventually uh, going to see a tide change. Well, Patrick, were you surprised that New Hampshire would vote to allow people to carry loaded guns on ATVs and snowmobiles? Or, I mean, this is the state that I think that allowed the people to bring their, allowed the state legislators to bring their guns onto the floor. Is that not right, Arnie? Mm -hmm. I, well, yes. And, well, in, in Massachusetts, that's where we go mm -hmm. to ride ATVs and now uh, apparently have our guns on board and, and to buy fireworks. So, mm -hmm. again, there's, and, and to pay less taxes, of course. So not surprised necessarily. And again, I think everybody's talked about this. It's almost reactionary, I would think, to what we were just talking about in terms of these young people. Everybody's going to stay where they are, be entrenched in, in what they believe. And right now, in a lot of these legislatures, there's a power base within the gun rights lobby. Now, over time, and it's going to take some time, it would think, for, for these young people to be in these positions to vote, to run for office. But it's also in, engendered uh, some reaction, people looking at these younger people and their reaction and saying, 
Well, me too. We actually had uh, Amy Schumer out on Martha's Vineyard uh, over the this past weekend for a Martha's Vineyard Film Festival, and she was talking about it and kind of had this imaginary dialogue uh, with a younger person and saying that her generation was going around saying, oh, everything's wrong and, and uh, we want to change things and we want to do things differently, but kind of just talking. Mm-hmm. And now this younger generation is coming up and saying, we're going to act, we're going to march. And she said, well, now we can turn to them and say, you're doing something, we're going to join you. So it's kind of this cross-generational thing that may be happening as well. Um, Let me just explain for people who do not know, Amy Schumer is a very popular and successful comedian who's headlined uh, both uh, feature films and also comedy specials for various networks. Um, She has now recently married Chris Fisher, who is a chef on the Vineyard. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> and, and Kelly, I just want to say mm-hmm. I have an article here from February 8th, 2018, ATV driver ejected in crash, critically <laughs> injured. Yeah. So as we're talking about this, remember these, the snowmobile, the ATV, they're designed for bumpy moguls, you know, not stable environments. And in the north country of New Hampshire, because uh, there's so much snow and because there are so many snowmobiles, they drive on the highway too. Oh. So I, I just want people to understand we're not just talking about, you know, the back 40. We could be talking about the roads where you see the snowmobiles and remember they put their kids on their snowmobiles this is begging for a problem but until it actually happens who knows and let me just remind you also that the NRA is not powerful because of money the NRA is powerful because they have learned to sort of intimidate and threaten people in primaries because they know how to pull voters out in primaries and that's why Republicans are so quick to genuflect I think that's where these young people are going to begin to understand why primaries matter as much as general elections matter and that's where they're going to exercise their muscle. This isn't about money. It's about intimidation. All right. Well, moving on, Patrick, down your way, the Martha's Vineyard Ferry is out of service again. Now, this is unusual because it just was refurbished to the tune of many millions, and there was already one problem a week ago with the uh, generator going, messing up, and uh, having people be on it for five hours unceremoniously. So what's going on here? Well, for the past week, it's actually been almost hard to keep up with the problems at the Steamship Authority, which is the boat line that runs ferries to and from the island one, in one of the boat lines. And actually, there are now two ferries out of service at this point. Oh, no. The Woods Hole, which had had another problem a week ago, that's out of service as well. The Martha's Vineyard, however, on Saturday a week ago, was having a problem with its generator and went out of service or broke down on the water. So there were people in the boat, about 70 people, 11 crew members, three uh, food service folks who were out there on the water for five hours. So you can imagine, and we were listening to this late at night and, and trying to catch up on it, our reporters, you can imagine the questions of like, are they in danger? And so that went through our mind. And when you figured out they weren't in danger, they anchored up and they were kind of sitting there waiting for tugs. Okay, the immediate problem is danger, but now, you know, you're sitting there for five hours and you can imagine having your family and you're headed somewhere and you have to be there and you're instead stuck in the water. And then they had to take them back to the island and then they had to get another trip over the next day. So lots of problems. They fixed it. It went back into service, I I believe, the next day. And then it had another problem. And, and again, meanwhile, the Woods Hole, this other ferry is going back and forth, and, and there are other ferries, but we're running out of them, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are three ferries that are out of service during the off-season for general maintenance. They've now taken the Martha's Vineyard out of service uh, this week and sent it to Fairhaven for repairs and to figure out what the problems were with this generator. It had just gone through an $18.5 million midlife refurbishment 
So you were hoping that it would work well. But then again, the Woods Hole went out of service and is now headed to Fairhaven to be worked on as well. So again, a lot of problems for the ferry lines. They've brought in uh, uh, some ferries that they're basically borrowing, I think, to fill the the routes. But people may not know, again, during the winter, there is still a lot of ferry traffic going back and forth between the islands. And for this ferry line, uh, this is a big deal. This is where they make their money. And if there are problems, people may look to, you know, planes and other ways of getting back and forth to the islands, at least temporarily. Early. Well, I just wanted to make the point that, you know, we who visit in the summertime, you know, tend to think of those ferries as just transportation for me to get over there. But this is business. Most of the ferry business actually is not about us, the visitors, but about the goods and services that are being loaded and people coming on and off working. So it's a real economic impact when these boats are not in place as they should be. And, and the replacements aren't always big enough to handle the type of capacity that the main boats do. So, again, now they have less space for passengers, less space for the vehicles. And as you said, there's a lot of business going back and forth. And, again, it is a big deal um, in terms of contractors and people who go to the island to work and come back. They're going to have to look for different ways to do that potentially. Uh, there are, again, ferries taking their place. And during the summer, there's a lot more backup. There's other ferries that are operating that they can kind of move around. During the winter, they think fewer passengers, we can take some of these offline, do some work. But again, they're not counting on the ones that they're running back and forth breaking down at that point. I don't really need to tell you, Patrick, or share with Arnie or Philip that if that thing broke down for five hours in the summertime when some of us are on that boat, that would be ugly. I'm just going to say right here. So we want this to Absolutely. get Absolutely. I think they gave them some free, you know, <laughs> meals or, or drinks at the snack uh, shop, but I don't think that that was really appeasing too many people. They did say that they were treated well and that they, they were updated with information, but some people did say it was a little much to be out there for five hours. I, I just don't want to see mm. mob behavior. I just, uh, I just got to tell you. <laughs> so close and yet so far from the beach? No, not a good look. All right, I'm going to move on, but first I want to remind people, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Arnie Arneson of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, Philip Isle, freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island, and Patrick Cassidy, news editor of the Cape Cod Times. You just heard him. We're discussing regional news from the Cape, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. Well, Philip, you know, it takes Rhode Island always to just add a little something special to everything. So you've got two Democratic state senators who are suggesting that if folks are of age who would like to partake in online porn, they're going to have to pay for it. Please explain. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, you, you said it. For such Sorry. a small state, we have this uncanny knack for for getting into the national dialogue. And this time it was, well, as the New York Magazine article uh, online that wrote about it said, Rhode Island wants you to apply, comma, pay $20 to look at porn. So what happened was, as you say, these two senators, Democratic senators, submitted a bill that, according to the Providence Journal, would require Internet providers to digitally block, quote, sexual content and patently offensive material, and consumers, if they wanted to, could deactivate that block for a fee of $20. More from the journal, each quarter, Internet providers would give that money from the deactivation fees to the state's general treasurer, who would forward the money to the attorney general to fund the operations of the Council on Human Trafficking, according to the bill's language. 
the bill kind of immediately got national attention. There was that New York Magazine article that said enforcing this law would be extremely difficult, to say the least. They bring up the questions, what kind of things would be screened in and screened out? Does photography from a war zone count? Does video of knee surgery count? The Vice website Motherboard wrote an article headline that people working on Rhode Island's porn-blocking bill don't even agree on what it does. Maybe the most interesting reaction came from the Rhode Island ACLU, which loudly and unequivocally denounced it. They said it was clearly unconstitutional, inevitably effective, and ultimately counterproductive. They said there are no changes that would make this bill constitutional. They pointed to Supreme Court decisions that had prevented this kind of thing, uh, infringement of the First Amendment from ever happening. So it's unclear to me what the status of the current bill is. I think there's really going to be strong opposition and uh, but yet again, Rhode Island is, is my own little laboratory of democracy is, is in the national dialogue. <laughs> well, Arnie, I think the point of this is to try to get a handle on the excess ability for many people access. to, to, access, uh, to right. access this porn. And if they're going to, I guess, within the confines of Rhode Island, then I guess Rhode Island should get some money from it. So you'd have to re- submit a request in writing that you be allowed to look at adult content, present some identification that you're 18 or older, get some warning about how bad it is, and then you pay the state a one-time fee of $20. So whoever said this was going to be hard to um, enforce is correct. But it's just so odd. I mean, well, you're from New Hampshire. You all have odd bills all the time. Well, no, no. <laughs> it, it's not, but it's not just that it's odd. It's that what is adult content? Well, can we all raise our hand to see yeah. if we can find any? I mean, I mean, for mm. me, for me, if I had a child, I'm not sure I want him to watch what's going on in Washington D.C. Yeah. That requires adult content. I mean, look what we're look what we're talking about. We're talking about the president of the United States and what we're talking about watching on uh, tonight on Sunday night. We're going to talk about watching, you know, Stormy Daniel, a porn star. Now, is that adult content on mm. 60 Minutes? No, this is really important. You know, the article says at the very end that the law is laughable, but, you know, it is expressing a sense of frustration that social media and our access to so much information has gotten so out of control. How do you put any kind of parameters on it? We're seeing that with Facebook and the 50 million users. We're worried about our kids accessing stuff that they may not be age appropriate. And um, it has galloped ahead. And yet at the same time, you do want to figure out how do you really exercise something in the way of controls and filters? And and I, I get the frustration. The problem is this ain't the answer. Can, can I just what's, quote what's, once more from the ACLU? They, yeah. they, they bring up this interesting point in their blog post about it. They say whatever screening devices are set up to implement this bill, should it be passed, are going to fall short. And they write, and I'm quoting, the devices are bound to be both under-inclusive, allowing lots of prohibited, quote, sexual Same. consent to get through, and over-inclusive by blocking a wide range of important educational, political, mm-hmm. and artistic speech on the Internet. I thought that was a really minutes. interesting point. Yeah. Uh, and Patrick, somebody's got to decide. Yes, I yes. mean, it, it goes back to the old adage slash Supreme Court case. You know it when you see it. Well, exactly. who are you and what are you looking at? And it's it seems like it's always somewhat subjective and, and what's art and what's, you know, not. So, uh, again, it always goes back to, to that, which was always kind of squishy to me uh, from the beginning as far as you know it when you see it. Uh, well, I may see something differently from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be interested to see hear this discussion when it comes before. I will but, keep you posted. Yes, that is really <laughs> Moving on. It gets from, two votes. I know, from the sublime uh, to the ridiculous right. or something else. Uh, Concord in New Hampshire has become the uh, last city to adopt full-day kindergarten. This is 
good news, I imagine, just because all uh, this mean all the cities have now full day kindergarten. Uh, okay, so let me just explain something. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire was the last state in the nation to have mandatory kindergarten. Did you know that? The no, last state in the mm-hmm. nation, and 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 the first person to actually contribute a dime to encourage uh, communities to even embrace kindergarten was the Republican candidate that ran against me, Steve Merrill. Actually, threw in some money so that so that schools would actually embrace kindergarten. It was a couple of hundred bucks, not clearly what it needs to cover. But one of the reasons why Concord was willing to finally drag its knuckles into embracing full-day kindergarten was that we uh, actually upped the ante and put some more money into full-day kindergarten coming from the state. But let's remember, everyone, how did we fund full-day kindergarten? With the embrace of Kino. So if we have enough Uh, Kino money, then you can get some money for full-day kindergarten. But here's the other kicker. We don't consider a 5-year-old the same as we consider a 6-year-old. So the amount of money you get from the state from Kino is not equal to the amount of money you would get for a 6-year-old. Like you get maybe three-quarters or four-fifths or... Sounds kind of like the con- how we did our constitution with how we valued blacks, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of they're partial people, even though they're in school full day. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons why Concord was one of the last communities to embrace it, it's not that they don't want full day kindergarten, but we are a city that has so much property that is government property that is not subject to property taxes that Concord has some of the highest property taxes in the state because there's so little left to tax. And when you're talking about full-day kindergarten, you're still talking about a relatively heavy lift when it comes to actually, you know, paying for full-day kindergarten. And just one last point, Callie, and there are six states in the country that don't contribute a dime for pre-K, which is now becoming almost assumed. We are one of the six states that doesn't. So we are dragging our knuckles when it comes to early investment and early childhood education, and that's really unfortunate with the state, which is one of the richest states in the nation. Wow. Well, I don't even know how to respond to that. Patrick, you went away. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, maybe you should start charging people $20 to access porn and then take that (laughs) money and put it towards early education. I mean, it's clear. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, let's move on. Unless, uh, Philip, you do want to add something to that? Well, I became curious about what Rhode Island statistics Mm -hmm. were when I read this, and I looked up and I found a stat that said in 2015, 2016, 80 percent of Rhode Island kindergartners statewide and 100 percent of kindergartners in the four core cities were in full day kindergarten. So it seems we've got that covered. And I also found this interesting thing from there's a uh, organization called Kids Count, which annually produces a report uh, about kind of the welfare of, of kids in the state. And they were kind of touting the overall rise of full day kindergarten in the country since 1979. And they pointed out that, you know, this isn't just a short-term thing, and this is them arguing this, but they say enrollment in high-quality kindergarten is associated with immediate academic gains and Mm -hmm. long-term improved outcomes, including attending college, owning a house, and earning more as an adult. High-quality kindergarten can also improve social and emotional skills. And they go on to say, you know, these social skills developed then have all these outcomes later on, including better high school and college completion rates, improved employment stability, and reduced criminal activity. So... All of that's to say, I think this isn't just some line item bill to pay now. It's, oh, no. It's an investment no. right. with, with real the, ramifications down the road. 
and let me just make an economic argument here, too. The business community was wildly supportive of this. Why? Because what happens with half-day kindergarten? You see parents either leaving to try to figure out what to do with their kids. Mm, mm. It means that they don't have the adequate daycare to cover it. So the business community really sees this as a stabilizing thing for their workforce because at least parents know their kids are in school full day. It also is attractive when you want to bring in people into employment scenarios in New Hampshire. We have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the, in the country. So we need people to come here. And if you tell people that you still have half-day kindergarten, they kind of roll their eyes going, like, what century are you in? Yeah. So I think it really is important economically as well as educationally. And I do want to just share with everyone the six states that don't have any money for preschool because I want you to hear them. Idaho, mm. Montana, New Hampshire, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with our regional roundtable, Arnie Arneson. You just heard her, Philip Isle, and Patrick Cassidy. We're talking about the New England stories you may have missed this week. Back to infrastructure, Patrick. People have a lot of attention paying, I think, to bridges these days, given that horrible, tragic accident of the pedestrian bridge that went down just a, a week or so ago and uh, in Florida, by the way. And it's still so shocking and there's the ongoing context of the a conversation about paying for infrastructure and bridges that need support. With that in mind, I read your story about this month-long construction on the Sagamore and Bourne bridges. You can't name two bridges that aren't used a lot that are going to be sort of out of commission. Cars will have to find alternate routes, but also walkers, you're just saying in this piece. People can't yeah, walk there across are, it. There are exactly three ways to get on and off what is essentially an island here. Um, one is to take a ferry to Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket. Obviously, problems there. One is to fly, and the other is to drive your car or some other vehicle back and forth over the two automobile bridges over the Cape Cod Canal, the Sagamore, and the Bourne. And in more than a month, this is going to be two months of work on the Sagamore this spring, and then more than two months of work on the Bourne in the fall. So you're going to have uh, the backups that come from that in terms of traffic, and you're going to have, uh, again, that happen on the other side. And then during the middle of that is summer, which is always backed up, and you throw an accident in or something else, and, and you're really in trouble. But in any case, we were looking at this, and there was a meeting, uh, local transportation officials, tourism officials really kind of, I think, asked the Army Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for these bridges, to come to this meeting. They heard all sorts of things about, you know, business, the effect on businesses, um, you know, moving people back and forth. Even the locals who in Bourne kind of go back and forth over those bridges every day to just go shopping or to visit people or to do things. Um, there were going to be all sorts of effects. One of the effects that that uh, wasn't really uh, highlighted at that point was the fact that people also walk over these bridges. There's sidewalks on the side. I personally have run over them a few times for wow. a, for a relay that I do, um, and it's not it's not always the most safe thing feeling wise. Um, even driving over them because they're they're skinnier lanes is not safe. Um, but when you're walking, it's still. But people do it. People use it as a way to get back and forth. Um, and now they're saying during parts of these construction projects, they're they're basically repairs to these bridges, which are date back to the 1930s. They're old. There's no two ways about it. They're obsolete in terms of the standards. But people walk back and forth over these bridges for about three weeks this uh, spring and uh, for a period in the fall. You're not going to be able to do that. So people are going to have to find alternative routes. And walking down to the other bridge, because it's happening on the Sagamore in the spring and the Bourne in the fall, is a seven-mile walk. So I, I, I doubt people are going to be really thrilled about doing that if they're just trying to get across to a friend's house on the other side of the bridge there. Um, it's going to be a big deal uh, for traffic, um, but it's also going to affect the walkers as well. 
listen, I want them to make that bridge strong because I'm going over that thing a lot in the summertime. But may I ask, and maybe this is a stupid question, why are we doing it right when you know traffic is about to be ugly? <laughs> I just, it, seems like it's a, a better time. I don't know. Well, they, during the summer, they're basically prohibited from doing it. And the Army Corps says that during the dead of winter, it's too cold. They mm -hmm. have, you know, mm -hmm. pavement that needs to set and things that Correct. need to happen that can't happen in the dead of winter. So they look for these windows, and that's all projects on the Cape. There's actually a stipulation, I think, with the Department of Transportation that you can't do projects in the middle of the summer because the tourism officials have pushed so hard over the years and said that would be a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. So they look for these windows in the spring and in the fall. But the tourism officials, um, Wendy Northcross, from the CEO of the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce, says, well, Columbus Day is the new Memorial Day. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're opening up exactly. the shoulder season. So uh, they're worried that these projects really are affecting uh, what is a, still a high tourism uh, season. Wow. And by the way, that doesn't even get into the idea of replacing them, which inevitably yeah. always comes up. During the Duval-Patrick administration, they were talking public-private partnership, yeah. putting in another bridge yeah, and being able to do it that way. Army Corps is looking in that direction of replacement, but that's, again, infrastructure money a long way off. All right. Well, that's not going to be pretty either. I'm just So saying. come to Cape Cod. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I usually do on my way, as you know, to the vineyard, but I'll be sitting there with the Peter Pan bus a long way around. I see that coming. So we'll see. Philip, got something to say about that? On the bridge, no. I mm. you you answered my question, which was: is, yes. is there any talk of of uh, a replacement? Yeah. Um, so well, I actually had another uh, question. My question was: when was the last time they actually repaired these bridges? I just want to know, like, what's the time okay, frame don't, between? Don't start it? scaring us. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Just no. leave that alone. <laughs> no, no. The, the fact is, they do it seemingly all the time, and that's one of the reasons oh. you get the reaction you do is because it, right. it, you know, just this this particular joint, this modular joint that they're replacing, it flexes so the bridge can flex. Uh, I think they they had done it five, uh, ten years ago, but then they also had to paint the bridges, and that is obviously good for keeping away corrosion, right. etc. Right. All this work goes on seemingly almost constantly at this point, and I think when you get to the age that these bridges are, right. that's what you're stuck with, is you always have to be maintaining them, or else you have you know, the potential for something uh, terrible happen. Something fell onto a vehicle, or, on, mm. or, or ice was falling onto vehicles, I guess, recently, but there was something Oof. that fell, a pole that fell or something recently, because it just corroded. So um, mm -hmm. looking at the superstructure of the bridge is, is something that they're always doing, and again, sometimes to the detriment of drivers. Well, I want them to fix it, so I'll, I'll just yep. shut up. Uh, let me move on, because there's a couple of things I want to get in before we run out of time. Uh, first, Arnie, uh, yes, Vice President Pence has been making his presence known in um, the Granite State, and people say he's either being a loyal soldier to President Trump or laying the groundwork for uh, a run for himself or, well, as a third option, he's just getting ready to be the backup plan should anything happen to um, or he doesn't want to be in Washington when they're firing everyone. Well, yeah, that, that's, that <laughs> I mean, could that be that be too. Reason. But uh, he can't uh, the, be fired though. The, exactly. The other piece no, of that no, is he that can't. he's uh, he's touting the um, the tax cuts, um, and that's going to be, I think, the leading conversation for Republicans about the success of that, or what they say is the 
the success of it. So, well, what it, is so shocking for mm. us, though, Callie, is that we, I mean, I can't believe it. It was just like a couple of days ago that Trump was in New Hampshire. Right. I mean, with all the stuff that's been happening in the last, you know, week, it feels like it was six months ago, but it was just Monday. And then, uh, and then uh, Vice President Pence came to New Hampshire to hang out with uh, Chris Sununu. And just to let you know that Chris Sununu has gone down to Washington 10 times. Mm. Uh, he's only been, you know, governor for about a year. So that's a lot of schlepping to Washington, I have to admit. Wow. And he even said that, you know, they don't do anything in Washington. So I'm going, then why bother going down there 10 times if you're grumbling about them not doing anything? And there is now this really interesting undercurrent about a Pence Sununu 2020 oh. or 2024 mm. possibility that he's creating this really sort of interesting relationship with Vice President Pence. And Vice President Pence, I think, is in New Hampshire, not only because he's being a good soldier, uh, but he's also kind of reminding the audience, you know, if you really want the perfect conservative that doesn't have any porn background, that isn't, you know, changing his mind all the time, that kind of still understands, you know, the, the institution of government, then I am probably your man. And just given what's happened in the last four days, Pence, you know, is probably doing the right thing by mm. showing up here and looking mm. so stable mm. because instability is what's defining the White House. And Pence is trying to remind everyone that, you know, he may not be hanging out there, but he has the potential to actually return there. Well, that'll be we'll have to keep an eye on that because uh, it's not often you see the president and the vice president in one state in a, in a matter of a few days. In so that's four pretty, days. Yeah, exactly. that's pretty weird. Um, well, let me squeeze in this last piece because, Philip, we've gone from porn, potentially, in, in, in uh, Rhode Island to Providence being named like the happening place by Vogue, of all publications. Do tell. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm always uh, excited when I can bring some good news to the show. I'm so often talking about government dysfunction and unemployment and <laughs> politicians being hauled off to prison. In this case, it's a Vogue.com article titled Why Providence, Rhode Island Should Be Your Next Weekend Getaway. Uh, the author, Julia Sherman, who once went to the Rhode Island School of Design, where I teach part-time, said she recently returned to give uh, a lecture at RISD and... Uh, she just found this city that she was in love with. She calls it a jewel box of a city. She cites the Victorian homes, industrial buildings, charmingly gruff New England personalities, Italian-American markets. She said the place has chutzpah. Um, she writes, a mix of old and new, loud, loud music, quality museums, and really good food. Providence is holding it down as my favorite town in America. So I could talk all day about why Providence is great. It's where I grew up. It's where I returned as an adult and have a very happy life here. But uh, I do not carry the stamp of approval of Vogue magazine. Uh, and now apparently the city has that. There you go. And it has fire water. So water fire. Fire fire. <laughs> water fire. And, and at some to-be-determined date in the future, a stage show about the life of Buddy Cianci, which we recently oh received news that the Prince of Providence, Mike Stanton's biography, is has been optioned for the stage by Trinity Rep. Unclear whether that's going to be a musical or a drama, but it's coming at some point. Well, if you have water fire and Italian food like you have it there, that's all need to be said. So I'm going to leave it on. You don't need a ferry. Yeah, there you go. You don't need a ferry to get to Providence. All of a sudden, they're all invited. Getting the short end of the stick here. I'm sorry, Patrick. Still a good place to be. We got sharks. Okay. Oh yeah, that's right. All right. Well, that's it. That's it. Thank you all for joining me today. Arnie Arneson is host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Philip Isle is a freelance journalist based in Providence. 
Providence, Rhode Island, and Patrick Cassidy is the news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, Kent State, Tiananmen Square, Soweto. These are just three places where young people took to the streets to demand change, making waves throughout the world. This weekend, a new generation took up the mantle. We reflect on student-led activism here in the United States and internationally. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Alexander Hamilton wrote his first political pamphlet as a student at King's College, now known as Columbia University. He was 17 years old. The lunch counter sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina, were started by four college freshmen. In 1963, the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, Alabama, invoked kids as young as seven in peaceful protests against segregation. And just this weekend, it was a group of high school students who got the nation to say, never again, as they led hundreds of thousands at the March for Our Lives. Student-led activism has always been a part of American culture and social change, and my guests say it may be a driving force. Joining me in the studio, Peter Levine, Associate Dean at the Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts University. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. And also with me, Victoria Massey, a senior at Charlestown High School and a member of the Hyde Square Task Force. Hello, Victoria. Hi. I'm so glad to have both of you. So we're having this conversation before the March for Our Lives on Saturday, so I want people to know that. But our conversation is really much broader than that. It's about really the context of student led activism and what that means. And I want to begin this way, just as a reminder for people who are sort of paying maybe half attention to it. It's been just five weeks since the Parkland, Florida shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and that was 17 people were killed, 14 students and three staff members. And from that grew this movement called hashtag never again. Since then, there have been student walkouts in every state as other young people declared their support for both this issue and the students who have been doing it. And just this past week, some students from the school who are survivors of that incident were here at the Institute of Politics at Harvard University. I want to take a listen to one of them. And this is Marjorie Stoneman Douglas student Cameron Caskey telling the audience at Harvard University about the quick reaction he and his classmates had after the shooting and setting up this movement. We spoke out. We said, no, you're not controlling our narrative. You are not telling our story. We were there. We are telling our story. We see past this facade that this is inevitable and this is the price of our freedom. We know that we can fix this, but we have to jump now. So, Peter Levine, let me start with you. What is so vibrant about student-led activism? Is that the energy that they have in the moment? What happens there that just makes people sort of respond in a way that they may not with with other folks who are leading movements? Sure. I think it's energy. I think it's a fresh face and fresh, sometimes fresh tactics. I mean, the sit-ins that you mentioned in your opening were new idea. And sometimes it's moral authority, too. I mean, certainly the kids at Stoneman Douglas have a sense of we should listen to them because they were victims. So it's a kind of moral authority that comes with being through something and speaking to the broader public. So, Victoria, before I ask about, you know, the work that you do with Hyde Square Task Force, 
Were you inspired by these students? Yes, I was very inspired by these students. I'm inspired by the platform that they were given to be able to speak out and be well known around nationally. It's very inspiring to me. Well, I just want to let people know that here locally in Boston, the Hyde Square Task Force is very inspiring to a lot of people. (laughs) You guys are the organizer's organizer. I was just saying to Victoria Peter before we began taping that I remember some of the campaigns that they've done, the one about the sexual survey that they took among their peers to find out really what young people think about it, the one about domestic violence, and then, of course, the one that everybody knows now is their fight to get the money owed your community from TD Garden and other businesses. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. How have you felt working in that space? And tell me about being a part of that group. I've felt very moved and very like, I don't know, I got this source of adrenaline through the work that we are doing. This is something that I never thought that we would reach to a level like this to be going up against a billionaire. It's just something that's really crazy to me and still now. And um. I just feel like there's more work to do. And although I'm kind, I'm leaving Hyde Square Task Force since I'm a senior, I still want to keep in touch with them and still be a part of this whole organization and this campaign that we're trying to get into the Jackson Square. So, Peter, let's talk about student-led activism because you make the point that there's a difference between student-led and young people-led. Mm. And I'd like to know, have you explained that? I was thinking especially of college students not being all young people, and sometimes those two things get equated. So there's lots of young people who don't go to college, Mm. uh, either a little too young, like Victoria Mm. up till now, or just not on the college path. And I think college students have two features. They're young, but they're also sometimes something of an elite. I mean, certainly the Greensboro youth, they were leaders of their communities because they were in college. But part of what we need to do is get everybody involved, which includes people who, in fact, are not college students or not on the college path. Were you surprised by the reaction to the Parkland students? I was pleasantly surprised. Yes, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have necessarily predicted it. I think one thing that's worth bringing out is that both the Parkland students and the Hyde Park Task Force students are supported, supported by programming, supported by training and education. I mean, I would defer to Victoria on Mm -hmm. whether that's true, but that's my impression. And some kids, basically in our society, some kids are pretty well supported to be activists, and some kids aren't. And I think when they are supported, they're, they're tremendously effective. So, in other words, if the Parkland students had come out and, and done what, exactly the same thing, and yet there was no other support, you think it might have faded away, or what would happen? Partly happened? that. Mm-hmm. So they're doing a really good job of making connections mm-hmm. um, across the country, but partly also that they know what they're doing. I mean, they're really very skillful. Even nuts and bolts things, they understand the constitutional rights. So there's even been this rumor that they're being uh, somehow set up by shadowy adult forces because how could these kids know all these constitutional rights? They know those constitutional rights. They have a strong uh, civic education program in that school. But I think, you know, Victoria and her colleagues also get prepared. doesn't mean they're being manipulated. It's not adults Mm -hmm. setting them up. It's education. It's Mm -hmm. learning how to be effective. So, Victoria, let let me let you address that because you do have an executive director of organizing. Um, That's Ken Todvik. How does he talk to you all about how to organize? I mean, what did you know after becoming a part of the group or what have you come to know that you didn't know before? Um, After becoming a part of the group, I've learned that it's not really much of Ken doing the work. He allows us to do our own research and to all meet and collaborate and and share our research on on um, Monday meetings that we hold every single Monday. 
And I feel like he really gives us the time. He doesn't want to do the research. He does some of the research, mm -hmm. but he gives us a chance to find different things that is out there in the internet. Everybody is very persistent in looking, particularly in certain areas when doing research. So clearly he also follows your lead about what you think is important, which is yes. the whole point of the group. Yeah. Right. So something I might think is important, that's not necessarily what might be something that the young people in your group are concerned with at the moment. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I wanted to make clear is this is a long a historic continuum of, of student-led activism that it seems to me that each one builds on the other, certainly in America, but we are also talking about international movements. And I wanted to just play a few clips from memorable protests. So what you're going to hear are some, some from the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins, the Kent State, Soweto, Tiananmen Square, and Black Lives Matter. And we're going to end right where we're beginning this conversation, which is with uh, the Parkland students and Emma Gonzalez's speech after the tragedy there. So let's take a listen. The date was February 1st, 1960. The four teenagers, freshmen at a local university, entered Woolworths and began shopping for school supplies. Receipts in hand, two by two, they approached the forbidden stools. Four dead students at Kent State in its wake is a profound reaction. The students start going crazy. Hundreds of campuses went out on strike. In 1976, we were so excited. The singing, the chanting, we felt free. Surprisingly, the whole of Soweto came together to march. About 10,000 students. For the first time in huge numbers, the ordinary men and women of Beijing, the old and the young, professors and taxi drivers, have joined the student protests, lending their support to what has now taken on all the appearances of a peaceful popular uprising against the oppressiveness of communist rule. Protesters dressed in black, some holding signs, entered the Baker Berry Library at Dartmouth College. So that's just a little brief history of some of the movements that we may know about that were student-led. They seem to be always present. They come in waves. What makes one stand out in the moment, I guess? Because there's a lot of stuff going on now, and I think we heard some of that. The Black Lives Matter movement has not gone away. Those young people are still active in that. And yet this one really struck a chord. Why, Peter? Right. So I think that Black Lives Matter work has been going on for a long time, and people have really sacrificed and worked hard, and, and there may even be some frustration that suddenly a bunch of more affluent kids in a predominantly white community in Florida get the attention. So that's something we could come back to talk about. Yes. But I also think in some ways the Black Lives Matter movement has built the predicate for a larger movement, and movements do benefit from being larger. So I think, I mean, I think there's a very good thing about having a bunch of new people enter the, enter the picture at this point. I also think Donald Trump has something to do with this. I mean, I think the broader political context is pretty hot because of a president who a lot of people are angry about. And that's certainly energizing all kinds of people, including middle-aged people and old people and everybody. So I'm thinking about the Occupy movement, which wasn't necessarily student-led, but had young people a part of it. And one of the things they said at the outset is, we are not going to be political. We're not engaging in that. That's the exact opposite of what these kids are saying, certainly Black Lives Matter kids, too, and others who are working toward other issues. 
But since we're talking about the Parkland kids, they have said, we are going to make sure people get registered to vote. And after they get registered to vote, then about our issue, we're going to be looking at people who support school safety, however that might translate in various areas. That seems to me to be different and quite early on in a very young movement. Am I wrong? No, I think that's a great observation. I mean, one way you could look at it is that the Parkland students are, are less radical. I mean, they're calling for something that actually polls show most Americans are in favor of. Occupy, I think, saw itself as a radical movement, sort of going at the heart of capitalism or something. I don't think the Parkland kids are doing that. They're just trying to get fairly popular legislation passed. So it makes more sense that they would be connected to the formal political system because they could they have a good chance of winning, at least in the medium term. I also wonder a little about the difference between kind of left of center activism when you have a Democratic president and when you mm -hmm. have a Republican president. So some of the Occupy movement was targeted actually at Democratic mayors and other leaders. So there's a feeling that there's no space there for them in the political process. So I think the Parkland kids feel like if they could get a different political leadership, they would win. Hmm. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Peter Levine, you just heard him, of Tufts University, and Victoria Massey of the Hyde Square Task Force. We're discussing our country's history of student-led activism and how social justice movements are continuing that tradition today. One of the things that I'm struck by, Victoria, is that a lot of young people, including these affiliated with the Florida group, look to the civil rights movement as inspiration and as directive, actually, because there were so many young people involved in the civil rights movement, and it looks from afar to be have been quite successful. But one of the things that I always maintain, having done some work on this, is that sometimes students don't realize how long it takes to make change. What are you learning at Hyde Square Task Force about staying the course, about needing to just understand that it's not going to change in five weeks? Some things may happen, but you just got to keep going if you're really interested in seeing something change. Yeah, that's something that we talk about all the time. We know that we're not going to get the recreational center tomorrow or maybe the next day, but we're just thinking about how we're going to push for it and how are we going to continue pushing for this even after we're not a part of Hyde Square Task Force. It's staying connected and being a part of those people and those connections that we have made in, at Hyde Square Task Force and not losing hope. That's something that's really embedded into us so that we are not easily tripped upon or give up easily on what we want within our neighborhood. What keeps you going? What attracted you to do this work? What attracted me? Mm -hmm. What made you want to do it? Because most of the things that go on in my community affects me, and I want to be a part of those decisions that are being made that may affect me or maybe my siblings who are younger and older than me. That's just something that keeps me driven. I want to make sure that my younger siblings are able to be in a safe environment, a safe community, in a community where they can do a lot of things in their interests and they're not hold back and not many obstacles are in their way. I'm trying to move some of those obstacles out of the way. Of course, I'm not going to move all of them out of, out of their way, but at least try. That's my guest, Victoria Massey. She's a senior at Charlestown High School and a member of the Hyde Square Task Force. Another question to you. We are taping this before the March for Our Lives on Saturday, and you're going to be a part of that. But you were telling me that you're going to be trying to inspire some other people to come with you who are not a part of Hyde Square Task Force. How do you get kids who are not a part of organizing to become involved? That's really hard. I feel like it's more of exposing what's going on within the community because not a lot of people or young people are keeping up with what's going on in the community or the change that they could contribute to within their community. And something that I'm doing is just reaching out to those friends that I have at school 
or outside of school, educating them mm. on what's going on in the community and um, giving them the options of contributing to it and telling them that it affects them. And if they want change, they have to step up. A lot of people, they can probably try to do it for you, but you could be a part of that change. You could be a part of that movement. And that's something I want a lot of my friends to understand. We don't have to stay silent. Mm. We can speak up. We can contribute. We can go to these rallies. We can give our speeches. We can do a whole bunch of things. Well, what Victoria just said about we don't have to stay silent, we can speak up, that's almost virtually what a lot of the kids from Parkland, Florida are saying, the same thing, that it's necessary for us to step forward. In fact, let's listen to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas student Alex Wynn, again at the Institute of Politics uh, panel this past week, when he says why he thinks the Never Again movement has had so much impact and staying power. I don't think this movement would be possible if we weren't teenagers, because we've seen it done before. When Sandy Hook happened, the parents came out and started speaking. They weren't able to get the job done, and they still work to this day. However, we were the ones there. We know what it's like, and we are making real change. We are making change happen in this country. So picking up from that, Peter Levine, back to a point that you raised that I want to make sure we get on the table, and that is there's been a lot of observation, certainly by me, I've written about it and talked about it, that the face of this particular movement, of the leaders of it, even though it won't be now and, and hasn't been as other students have become a part of it, has been mostly white. Mm -hmm. Now, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School is very diverse population, so that should be clear. So there's lots of folks there. It just happened that the folks in the front... Certainly some of the victims were persons of color, but the people in the front speaking are mostly white. And I think they have just now recognized what that means, really, and how they're going to address it. So first, before you respond to this, let's listen to uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas alum Matt Dyche. He's 20. His younger brother is involved in the group. And he's just starting to talk about the issue of inclusion. This uh, conversation about inclusion and diversity is a really good pat on the back for a lot of people. But I mean, if you look up on the stage, you'll notice that something's missing. And the fact of the matter is that we have to partner with these groups that already exist, whether it's the Dream Defenders and Black Lives Matter and I Care and all these groups around the country that stand up for these disenfranchised mm -hmm. voices. I've noticed that a number of them have spun off across the country to meet with Dream Defenders and also some Black Lives Matter groups, chapters across the country. So Peter, weigh in on that. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, so I think possible leaders who are white need to learn to be good allies and step back and make space for other people. They do have a tendency to grab all the limelight. I also think there's a kind of sort of natural growing pains in any kind of social movement. It, it often starts with the people who are most affected by a problem, the most victimized, really, and who sacrifice the most and who have a hard time getting traction. And then at some point, a lot of people join. And that's always frustrating because then you have all these newbies and sometimes some of them emerge as leaders and where were they? But the strongest predictor of a social movement success is how many people join it. And so that growth is actually good. I mean, it has to be managed right. And the worst case scenario is, or one of the worst case scenarios is that a bunch of new, newbie white people take it over. But the growth is good. So I think everybody's got to struggle with that. I don't think it's easy. Yeah, because I just want to uh, emphasize that a lot of people have been on the ground working on these issues who are persons of color. And I've not heard one of them say, hey, we're mad about what's happening, that the, the Florida students are getting so much attention. But they do want to point out that we've been doing this work. Right. And it's important that we all be together in, in joining our voices as doing this. Right. Now, Victoria, as a young woman of color, mm -hmm. uh, had you noticed that? Was that something that made its way into your consciousness as you're thinking about um, how this movement has evolved? 
Yeah, that is something definitely that I have noticed that majority of the Parkland students who are speaking up are predominantly white and of lighter complexion. Honestly, I I like that they are addressing this issue that's going on. And I like how they're using their platform to go about it. And I feel like the more that we get that out there, that there are others, people of color, Mm. who are doing the same work, who are not getting that much um, publicity of the work that they are doing. And that's something, um, it's frustrating, but it's something that we're going to have to work towards and try to change well, the millennials always say, and you are, you are younger than a millennial, say that they are in a different space when it comes to race. I mean, I know that can be argued a lot, <laughs> but they like to say that they left behind some of the concrete attitudes of some of their... Peter Levine is shaking his head. I'm Go ahead, comment, head. comment on that, Peter. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's... that's you probably, From your body language, you're, you also think that's a little overstated. I mean, I, unfortunately, our schools are, are very deeply segregated in some ways, uh, on some dimensions, more segregated than they were when I grew up, and I'm 51. And a lot of kids think that they are growing up in a multicultural world and they're actually growing up in a pretty homogeneous world and it's very stratified. So, But I, I do think these kids from Florida are showing a very rapid learning curve that I think we should celebrate. I mean, they're not going to get it exactly right the first time and they're going to have to learn things like they're going to have to learn what's going on in the, mm. in the world around them, but I feel like they're trying to learn as fast as they can, so I'm basically in the mood to celebrate them. What are some of the dangers that could upend this movement other than apathy? which would be a big one where they just, you know, people stop working toward their goals. Well, you hit on one earlier, which is that it takes resilience because it takes a while to win. And in fact, there are going to be defeats, presumably, including legislative defeats. We saw already in the Florida Mm -hmm. legislature blatantly refusing to consider their issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they got to hang in there. And that's easier said than done. Easier for me to say they should hang in than for Mm -hmm. them to actually hang in. Mm -hmm. But as you said earlier, you only win if if you hang in there. I hope we teach things like the civil rights movement in a way that, that indicates that going on. I mean, the, one of the worst misteachings of it is to say that Rosa Parks was a tired seamstress oh, who right. got on the yeah. bus. Yeah. And people need to know that for the preceding 15 years, she'd been a very committed activist. Um, so she only won after 15 years of struggle. And, uh, and to your yeah. point about institutions and supporting uh, student-led movements, they also need to know that there were plenty of people um, helping the students in the s- civil rights movement learn how to um, organize themselves, learn how to prepare for those demonstrations. It was quite strategic. It was not a happenstance, right. and it was long-term. So let me wrap up this way with you, Victoria Massey, because you're the voice of the young people who will be going forward with these kinds of uh, movements. Do you see yourself as a role model? Yes, I do see myself as a role model. I actually have a niece who looks up to the work that I do and using my voice and my talent to advocate for change within my community. And that's something I'm proud of. Like, I want to be able to motivate people and my younger siblings and other children within this world to speak up for themselves. And no matter what age it is, they may doubt you because of the, the amount of years you've been on this earth, but you can definitely show them and show out. Well, i got a feeling we'll be hearing from you in the years to come. (laughs) (laughs) So good luck to you, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And thank you for joining me. Honored to do it. Peter Levine is Associate Dean at the Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts University, and Victoria Massey is a senior at Charlestown High School and a member of the Hyde Square Task Force. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Andrea Swaye is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.